Good morning. 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 Welcome to the Kitchen Sink Meeting of Overeaters Anonymous. My name is Kat. I'm a compulsive overeater bulimic and your leader for this meeting. Hi, Kat. Hi. Uh, As a courtesy to the meeting, please turn off all cell phones and other electronic devices. Thank you. Are there any other compulsive overeaters here beside myself? Nice. Nice. May we see the hands of anyone new to Overeaters Anonymous and people in their first 30 days of abstinence? If so, will you please stand and give us your first name? Anybody? Okay. Is there anyone from out of town? Okay. The purpose of this meeting is to help anyone who thinks they may have an eating problem. This is a workshop meeting, and we hope that by asking questions, you will better understand our program. May I have a volunteer to read how it works from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous? How it works. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. Usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. There are such unfortunates. They are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Their chances are less than average. There are those two who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. If you have decided what you want, what we have, and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. At some of these we balked. We thought we could find an easier, softer way, but we could not. With all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas and the result was nil until we let go absolutely. Remember, we deal with food, cunning, baffling, powerful. Without help, it is too much for us. But there is one who has all power, that one is God, may you find him now. Half measures availed us nothing. To set the turning point, we asked his protection and care with complete abandon. Here are the steps we took which are suggested as a program of recovery. One, we admitted we were powerless over food that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, Committed to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and become willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, Continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. 11. Sought through prayer and meditation to prove our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. And 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and practice these principles in all our affairs. Many of us exclaimed, What an order! I can't go through with it! Do not be discouraged. None of us had. None of one among us has been able to maintain like perfect adherence to these principles. We are not saints, except Jack. 
<laughs> the point is that we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. The principles we have set down to guide our progress. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. Our description to the overeater, the chapter to the agnostics, and our personal adventures before and after make three clear make clear three pertinent ideas. A. That we were compulsive overeaters and could not manage our own lives. B. That possibly no human power could relieve our compulsive eating. And C. That God could and would if he were sought. The definition of abstinence in Overeaters Anonymous is the action of refraining from compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors while working towards or maintaining a healthy body weight. The definition of recovery in OA is the removal of the need to engage in compulsive eating behaviors. Spiritual, emotional, and physical recovery is the result of living the Overeaters Anonymous 12-step program. May I have a volunteer to explain his or her abstinence? I am Julie Compulsive Overeater, 100 pounder, and demonstrating, projecting one's voice out in the outside. <laughs> anyway, my abstinence is I, re- I abstain from flour and sugar. I have another, a few other really granular things like no full fat cheese at home, um, a couple other behaviors, and I maintain that by weighing and measuring, committing my food, and doing a daily 10 step. Um, now it's time for the leader to qualify. We ask that you keep the focus on your recovery in this 12-step program. Qualify until 9.30, five-minute work. Who am I getting a timer? Okay, great. Thanks. <laughs> and you what? Okay. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Okay, can you guys... Is this better? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm Kat. Thank you so much, Atusa, for asking me to lead. Um... I'm really nervous. I always get really nervous, especially at this meeting. This is where I was new. Um, This is where I took my first service position back at the log cabin, uh, where I was given the instruction to set up the chairs per the squares on the floor. And all I had was to do that service position. And if I didn't do it perfectly, I felt like I wasn't going to do perfectly in the program at all. Um, Since then, I've learned progress, not perfection. but I look up to a lot of people in this room and or out here and a lot of people's recovery. And so I'm very nervous. Um, please take what you want and leave the rest from my story. I was thinking a lot on the way here. All I have is today. I just celebrated 10 years of abstinence on November 15th. Thank you. Um, but all I have is today. I. I think the fear I have that I'm not going to make it to tomorrow is healthy for me. Um, Okay, what it was like. Uh, I was, I used to say I was born a compulsive overeater. I'm not so sure anymore because I have since being in these rooms, done field work, being with my family and um, noticed the seeds that were planted from a very young age. I have a card my godmother sent me when I was 10 months old. Um, which was right before Halloween and I had just started walking. And so in the card, she said, it's a good thing you're walking because your mom's going to feed you Halloween candy and you can burn it off. So she got in real early. (laughs) And from there, my dad taught me to read nutrition information from the time I could read. Um, 
around the time I hit puberty and my body started changing, my parents sat me down and said, we've noticed that it started changing. Make sure it doesn't get out of hand. From there, I was 12, so uh, they got me a personal trainer. I had a calorie counting sheet that I would sit at recess after lunch and log all of my food. And I was rewarded with um, verbal praise because I looked better to them. And in my family, I have since learned that success is doing well in your job, whatever that looks like, and being thin. Um, That is no longer my definition of success, but that's what I was taught for a long time. Um, My godmother used to bring me to dressing rooms and put me in outfits I should not have been in and told me what I could and could not wear based on my body type. So being in this program has been a lot of unlearning of a lot of things and replacing those tools, those very toxic tools that I had in my toolbox with more spiritually based things surrounding love for myself and love for others and not so much disdain for myself and punishment. Um, I will give a little trigger warning that I am going to talk about some sexual assault related stuff. So especially anyone listening on the podcast, I will not go into details, but if you can't hear that today, I understand. Um, Feel free to flip forward. I learned how to get rid of my food uh, in high school through laxatives and then ultimately throwing up. That felt like a huge win for me because I could eat whatever I wanted and then get rid of it. I mean, spoiler alert, it doesn't work. Uh, Still one of the greatest disappointments of my life. Um, And then I, looking back, I've heard this said in program, I think I first heard it in this room, which was, I wish I had the body that I hated then looking back at photos because my body never looks good. It's never good enough, especially pre-recovery. Um, and so I'd look back at high school photos and go, what was going on in my brain? Everything was okay. I felt like I was too big. I felt, and therefore I felt like I was wrong and bad. Um, I can't believe I was given the messaging I was given. I can't imagine giving the messaging I got to a child now. Um, but I don't know that I would feel that way had I not found these rooms. So I went to college and truly kind of felt free for the first time. Like I could make my own decisions. I was happiest. Um, And I noticed looking back that in that time period when I was happiest, it was the least amount of time spent on food and diet because I was genuinely comfortable in my skin and where I was at. Um, And that all changed about six months into college when I was assaulted for the first time. that ended up being the first of three times, three different people, three different situations. And I didn't have many tools at the time, but what I did learn was that food comforted me and the outside world felt dangerous. So by the end of college, I was holing up in my room with fast food or sugar, especially, but anything that was going to help me stuff those feelings down because I couldn't handle anything. Everything was scary. I was having panic attacks twice a day. I had notes to get me out of classes because I couldn't make it across campus. And I knew, quote unquote, knew that I was alone in it because when I reached out for help, it made others uncomfortable. And I thought, don't do that. Asking for help makes you vulnerable and you're not getting the response that you need food makes you feel better. And so it was an odd time because it was the first time food actually 
helped when nothing else did, but it very quickly, after I would eat and feel better, I would hate myself and think I need to get rid of this because if people see that on me, then no one will love me, even though I already felt very unloved. So then I would purge. And purging was more about punishment than it was about diet at that point. It was painful. It was violent. It, bless you, it made me feel like physically how I felt emotionally. That's the best way I can put it. Um, I crawled my way out of college uh, emotionally very damaged and not quite knowing what to do. I fell into a job I loved and felt like I was kind of on the right path again, but what didn't stop was my eating disorder. And beyond the physical attributes of the eating disorder, what didn't stop was my stinking thinking about it all. I hated my body, but I hated my body because I hated myself. Um, so I started going to therapy and it was the therapist who suggested to me, you've tried OA once before because I dropped into a meeting, didn't feel like it was for me or I wasn't ready. Um, why don't you try it again? And so I went to the cottage in Santa Monica uh, to a 6.30 p.m. meeting on a Friday. I cannot tell you who spoke that day. I cannot tell you what she talked about, but I can tell you that I wanted what she had and it was like light was coming out of her. She was happy. She was secure. She had tools that I didn't know a person could have and I wanted that. And I thought, I'm coming back. But on my way home, I'm going to go through a drive through because I feel like they're going to make me cut this off. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was a slow start for me. Uh, <laughs> but I kept coming back, which to this day, it's the most important part. It's the thing that keeps me coming back. It's the thing that keeps me in recovery is keep coming back. Um, then I heard once I went to enough meetings, get a sponsor, start doing the steps. So I found someone who had what I wanted. I also heard her complaining about having to do the work. And I was like, yeah, this is annoying. Like, you sound good. On top of that, she had all of the spiritual gifts I wanted. But it was helpful that she felt approachable with it all. Um, and so on, at the first meeting, she handed me a highlighter. And she goes, go get a big book. Highlight the big book with this. Come back to me after you've read through up until the personal stories. And I highlighted the heck out of that book. I was like, oh, this is me, this is me, this is me. Especially the story with the whiskey with a little bit of milk. Oh, did I feel that. And going to bed every night going, I'm going to do better tomorrow. That was my story for so long. And I read that over and over again in the big book. And I was like, well, I guess I found my place. Um, and I found my place with all of you. I felt very inferior because I couldn't get it. Um, which I now know is that the getting it part is just coming in the rooms. And as long as you're in the rooms, you're in the right place. And no matter where I'm at in my journey, I'm enough. Everyone in this room is enough. And I, that's what I was lacking, especially in the beginning, was feeling like I was okay just as I was and as I am. Um, so now's the time when I say I've just hit 10 years the only things I say about my recovery are that my abstinence is three meals a day, two optional snacks, no sugar. I also abstain from white flour for health reasons. And then just to make it real fun, I cut out meat a couple of years ago um, for ethical reasons. So there's no way any of that would have happened without the rooms because now it's not about the food. It's about my spiritual recovery. The one thing I don't preface for myself is how much weight I've lost because for me, when I say I've lost this, this much weight, I just don't look at her, me, when I was at my heaviest in the same way when I qualify like, oh, I've lost weight, that's better now. 
um, I mattered just as much then as I do now, no matter what body I'm in. And I, my, I've had health problems that have caused my weight to fluctuate beyond my control, which has been a real challenge at times. Um, but this program and doing the steps and my sponsor and having a higher power that I trust now is what makes those times possible to get through without feeling less than. Um, so I grew up in a church that I was deeply embedded in and really enjoyed my relationship with my higher power. I had a hard time grabbing onto other tenants of the, of the church, but I was always a rule follower. I was always a good girl. And I was told, this is what you do. If you don't follow every rule to a T, you're called a buffet Christian. I, my church was more specific, but just, I don't want to get into details, but, um, cause re- every religion works for people in different ways. This is just my story. But, um, it wasn't until I did step two and my sponsor said, write an ad for the higher power of your dreams, what your perfect higher power would look like beyond anything you've been told your higher power is or has to be. So I wrote this ad down that basically was like, oh, even when I mess up my higher power, I'm not less than my higher power doesn't love me any less. I grew up in a very conditional home with a very conditional idea of a higher power. Um, And therefore, if I wasn't perfect, I was less loved. And therefore, I would internalize that as less lovable. So when I wrote this ad, it a kind of a light went off. Or a light switch, light switch went on. A light went on? We get it. Um, thank you, yeah. <laughs> Stay with me. It's just going to get worse. Um, uh, so I'm a dog person, and someone told me that their higher power is like their their dog. When you come home, no matter how long you've been gone, maybe you forgot to feed them that morning or forgot to pray, that dog is always thrilled to see you when you get home. It may sound weird, but that really helped click it in for me too. I was like, oh, right, that, that does sound like the ideal of a higher power. Because all we can do is do our best. And I'm often finding myself going, I'm doing my best. It feels like it's not enough, but it's all I can do. Um, and so when I check in with my higher power, I do it imperfectly. But the faith is there now that I've done steps two and three, especially the first time around, that I'm not alone and I'm not the biggest power in my life. That relinquishment of control really helped me release the belief that if I'm able to control my food, everything's going to be fine. I have control over me. I don't have control over my addiction, but I have control over whether I can pick up the phone in lieu of eating, whether I can sit down and do step work or pray. Um, I have alarms in my phone going off all the time. At noon, it's the serenity prayer. Well, at 8 a.m., it is what is your will for me, higher power. And then it's serenity prayer. And then after lunch, it's either the 3rd or the 7th. And then around 8 p.m., I have all of these different ones that are more of like reminders. Like, what would happen if you just kept going? Little things that get me through the day, time-wise, based on the most stressful parts of my day. Um, So the steps have been monumental if you're new. And I used to sit in this meeting 10, 11 years ago and go, someone tell me what to do. I don't know what to do. I'm here and it's not working. Get a sponsor, do the steps. It's a gradual process, at least for me. It didn't happen overnight for me. It was gradual. I had to learn rigorous honesty. 
I'm a pretty honest person overall, but that's also when I started learning how bad my disease was when I was trying to lie to my sponsor about what I was eating. And I was like, whoa, 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 this isn't you. Oh, you really do have a problem. Like there, even in program, there were times where I was like, oh, this is deep. And if you don't turn it over, you've heard from other people in the meeting and you keep that secret, you're only as sick as your secrets. And that was so true for me. Um, okay, so what it looks like now. Um, 10 years in, 10 years feels scary, but one day at a time feels manageable. So it's still one day at a time for me. Service is the other thing that has changed my recovery and changed my life. I always have to have a service position in at least one meeting. I'm also an Al-Anon. I have to keep it there. That's for me to make sure I show up to the meeting, but also to feel like I'm a part of something and to get myself out of my head and be of use and service to someone else. I have a sponsee, same thing. I have to pick up and be there for her. And if I'm having a bad day, you better believe my day is a little better after I get off the phone with her. A, because I'm being of service, and B, because service gets you out of your own head. Um, Proof for me in my life that I have a higher power is that service has extended to a place I never thought it would. Um, My family started changing in a really tough way seven, eight years ago. And I decided to not go home for the holidays. And instead I started doing a volunteer abroad program. So that slowly but surely led to, I have family members in a different country now that I go visit once every one or two years. Um, not biological family, but they are my family. And in 2019, I started my own company that involves doing a lot of work with those who are displaced by war and, um, famine or refugees of some type. So I travel a lot. I'm out of the country up to 10 times a year and I get to go work with other people um, and be of service to them. And I've also gotten to involve other people in that mission. So it's a lot of work. It's a lot of change. It's a huge challenge. But when it's service directed, it's always been possible. It shouldn't be. I've been in some very bizarre places where everything is going wrong and yet somehow it always works out as long as I'm not putting myself in the driver's seat or making it about me. Uh, and having a crew of people that I also need to look after and knowing that at the end of the day, I, we have a chance to tell someone's story that they wouldn't otherwise get to tell puts me so far out of it from a selfish perspective. I'm not worrying about food that day. I'm not worrying about me because it's not about me, but I get a lot out of it. So service is a huge aspect, not just of my recovery, but of my happiness now. Um, I don't think I would be as happy in my recovery if service wasn't made imperative at every part of the process. Um, But beyond the traveling and doing all of that, I have to show up for my sponsee. I have to call my sponsor. I have to check in with my higher power. I have to because I want to be good and follow the rules, but I have to for my recovery. Um, How much time do I have left? Wow, I really blew through my life real quick. Uh, (laughs) Look at that. Uh, Okay, I'll end with this. Uh, My brother got married a month ago. And I was the officiant. Um, I am t- I'm very tall. I'm 5'10". I like being tall, but it is always added to a sense of feeling bigger in general. My brother is shorter than me. His fiance is a foot shorter than me. And so I was very aware standing up there with a photographer at the end of the aisle and my brother and his fiance standing in front of me. 
that I was going to, quote, look big in the photos. Luckily, I was able to service focus it and go, well, you're showing up for them. It has nothing to do with you. Did I wear flat shoes just to feel a little better? Yes, I did. But the photos showed up about a week ago, and I didn't like them. Photos used to knock me down and go, you need to fix this. You need to get into an action plan. You need to da-da-da-da-da. I saw the photo, and I was like, I don't like it. I didn't feel that way that day, and I deleted it from my text chain. End of story. And I kept going with my day. Food and body and the way I treat my body now is very different than when I came into the rooms. Exercise is goal-oriented and not scale or number-oriented. I've climbed a lot of mountains, some I had no business being on. Um, I ran a 5K, I ran a half marathon, which I loved because they give you a trophy no matter how bad you are at it. I feel like I'm starting to beat the system now. You find something where they give you a sticker. I'm like, oh, that's the goal now. Um, But exercise is no longer a punishment. Exercise was something I would do to go, you have to do this because you were bad today. You ate this. You did this. Now exercise is something I do when I'm like, I'm not feeling great, but I know if I move my body, I'll feel better after. Um, I walked a lot during the pandemic, I'm sure as we all did, but anytime I would get crazy or in stinking thinking, it was take a walk, take a walk, take a walk. Um, thank you. I'll wrap up with this. This program saved me. This was the last house on the block for me. I remember thinking, I'm just gonna end it if this doesn't work because I'm so unhappy and so terrified and I don't know what to do and I, 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 I. My life doesn't look like that anymore because this program has freed me from that type of thinking. I'm not chained to the food anymore. I have a huge community in all of you and beyond this room and other rooms. I'm so grateful. And I'm very open to what I don't know yet. And that's okay that I don't know it all yet. And that's it. Thanks for letting me share. Okay. Um... There is no break at this meeting. We will now pass the basket for our seventh tradition. A donation of $3 is suggested, but any amount would be greatly appreciated. May I please have a volunteer to read the 12 traditions. Please be quiet while we are reading our traditions. Thank you. Can I get a volunteer? Terrell? Hi, Terrell, composer over reader. Hi, Terrell. 12 traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends on OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority. A loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry the message to the compulsive overdue who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, overs anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible for those they serve. 10. Overs Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. 11. Our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. 
We need always maintain uh, <clears throat> personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, film, television, and other public media of communication. Twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions. Ever remind us to place principles before to personality. Okay, this is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leaders are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Questions? Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, what process have you gone through this and how to get to a kind of level of forgiveness? Because I'm planting. Good question. Uh, so the question was, I've limited my exposure to my family of origin. Uh, what forgiveness and steps have I taken to get there? Thank you. Um, yeah, I've. <sighs> Al-Anon has definitely helped with that, but to keep the focus on OA. Um, step work has been monumental seeing my part and how I keep the resentments going. Um, I'm about to turn over my fourth step again to my sponsor and my parents especially are on there a lot. But what's really helped with that is going, bless them, change me. I can't change them as much as I would love to. I can't change them. And in the past couple of years, I've also noticed how my behavior then kind of pushes back at them. Um, I would say that's what I'm working on most now. I'm able to love them where they're at and detach with love uh, and also look at what behavior I'm willing to put up with and what behavior I'm allowing myself to put a boundary up with and then how that sounds to them versus how I need to communicate it for me. I do it very imperfectly. My father is in addiction right now, and I saw him at the wedding I was at, and I was there for my brother, and I was not there to make it about me, so I spoke with him, and I did enjoy some of the time I got to spend with him. Now he's reaching out a lot again, but he's really sick, and he can't respect boundaries, so I am now back to limiting my time with him, and I say, I love you. I just can't spend that much time because of your drinking, but I love you so much. He's not going to hear that the way I want him to, but how he hears it, I can't control. All I can control is saying what I mean, meaning what I say and not saying it mean. Um, it's a little harder with family that I still see. And the same thing, I kind of, I usually call my sponsor before I go, like for Thanksgiving and go, here's what I would love for them to do. Here's what I kind of expect. Here's what's going to happen, and I'm going to take the dogs for a walk the second the fighting starts. So it's a case-by-case basis, but checking in with my sponsor helps. Fourth step step helps. And it's my job not to keep the resentment going once I've left that situation. Does that answer your question? Okay, cool. Thanks. Carol? So um, based upon your work that I, I read about you with the Really um, sad situations. Mm-hmm. People have suffered from those sad situations. Mm-hmm. So how do you square God with that? Mm. 
Ooh, good question. How do I square God with the sad situations I see, especially in my work? Um, The suffering. Yeah, I see a lot of suffering. I hear a lot of suffering. Um, How do I square God with that? I will say usually I'm very lucky to be in the rooms at a time when we're able to treat the situation with dignity and the people we're working with are out of those bad situations. I'm very rarely in a conflict zone. I am working towards being in conflict zones more. Um, But what I will say is even when I'm in the most dangerous situations, it's like there's an army of people there ready to fight it and keep people safe. That's where I see God. Um, I don't know how to, I don't know. I have questions for my higher power if and when I meet them (laughs) because there's a lot of suffering in the world and I've heard things I can't unhear. All I know is that I've been sitting in some rooms with a family who has nowhere to go and they're in a country where they're safe, but they're not allowed to be citizens of that country. And all they want is to keep their family safe. And I look around the room and we're with people who have devoted their lives to making sure they're safe. And they're sitting there holding those people's kids on their laps, making sure that those kids are happy. Everyone's fed. In that moment, you see the best of humanity, despite showing up to give someone a chance to talk about the worst of humanity that they've been through. I don't, I wish I had more control over that and I don't, but it feels like that's where I see my higher power the most and everyone's higher power the most. Cause all you feel is safety and goodness in those moments. And it's safe enough for people to open up and allow them the space and the dignity to share those moments so that they don't feel like they're the problem and they have to be vulnerable alone because sometimes carrying around the weight of what you've been through can feel shameful. But in those moments, I think the very least that what the people in those rooms can do is make it a safe space. And God is all over that. Does that answer your question? Like programming your assault? Yeah. Uh, For programming my assault. um, Yeah. There's a similarity. For my assault, I've been really lucky to work the steps. And my assaulters were on my fourth step. Um, Only once, though. They don't follow me anymore. Um, My sponsor has heard my story. My sponsees have heard my story. These rooms especially have been really safe places for me to open up about my assault. And not just open up about it, but own it and go... I now have the tools to walk out into the world. I can't guarantee it won't happen again. It very likely could because I'm also putting myself in a lot of dangerous situations these days with my work. But I have a different toolkit and I have a new support system where I'm not going to feel scared to show up and go, this is what happened to me and I need support. And I have faith that it will be there. I didn't have that faith and I didn't have the vocabulary or the tools to ask for help. Um... And this, I mean, this program, especially more than therapy, more than my family and friends has been the place where I've been able to stand up here and not shake or (sighs) I feel empowered to talk about it now. In the beginning, it would shut me down and I'd have to close out for the day. I can talk to you all about what happened to me and go, that's what happened to me. And this is the one of the gifts I got out of seeking help and recovery. And then I get to go on with my day. 
So yeah, God shows up in big ways, but especially, I'm so grateful for all of you because I feel it so much here. Yeah. Thanks for your question. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. When did you realize that your calling for service was beyond these rooms? When did I realize my calling for service was beyond these rooms? Um, when did that come into being? When did that come into being? I can't tell you exactly when. Um, all I can tell you is that being of service guaranteed I was in a meeting. And it guaranteed that I felt more a part of something. And it took me out of myself. So somewhere along the way, I will say, despite having troublesome parts of my family, my family also raised us, me and my siblings, with the idea that if you have, you give back. And you don't have to have a lot to give back. If you have time, you can give some of it. If you have money, you can give some of it. Um, If you have space to listen and hold space for someone else, you can give some of it. And it's the greatest thing because you also feel good about doing it in return. It's a really full feeling for you and the person you're doing it for. Um, I don't know when it hit for me. I feel like it was really higher power directed because when I started my company, it was really uh, two people near me go, well, if you're trying to do that, do it. And I went, I can't do it alone. And they went, oh, we'll do it with you. And next thing I knew, we were on a plane heading to the Netherlands for a week, four, four months later to interview someone. Um, that's my higher power. That's not me. None of that should have gone well. <laughs> but it went well. And we have lifelong friendships because of it on top of being able to show up and do service. So I don't know if I can tell you when, but I can tell you my higher power was directly involved. It was less about me making decisions and more about being open to the possibility because I feel safe to do so because of my higher power and the vulnerability that this program has nurtured for me. Yeah. Thanks for your question. Any other questions? Thanks, Kat. Hey. It's so funny how you practiced your share like it wasn't going to be great. You talked about like when you're in crisis situations, you're really crazy moments and you you can get through them as long as you're not in the driver's seat and you're not making it about you Mm -hmm. how do you deal with not making it about you when it's not crisis it's not like immediately i know what i need to do to help other people here when it's just Mm. you're just by yourself or you're doing a a mundane thing and uh, you're trying not to be in your own head about that's a good question how do i deal with a crisis when it doesn't involve other people and it's about me um i love crying I'm re- I wish I could put it on my resume. I'm a gold star <laughs> crier. And like if I feel anything big, I'm going to cry. And I used to hate that about myself. And now I'm learning that if I let myself take a second and make space for a cry, most likely that's going to be the first thing to check off the list. Um, but I think it's become about allowing myself to make space to be vulnerable and to pause Usually I'm a doer, so I want to go right through it and get it done and fix. Um, That's something I'm still learning. I would say that's the hardest part is when I'm in crisis, I'll first go, what did I do wrong? Um, How do I fix it because I'm wrong or bad? And then once I'm able to sit back, have a cry, 
take a pause. I have to kind of journal and or call my sponsor and or meditate and or reach out and make a phone call because I don't know, the the alleyways and streets in my brain are, can still be really dark if I let them. And so a lot of times I have to get it out on a page, cry it out or call someone. But it, it's... I've also learned that I'll look for validation in other people. So the calling someone has changed over my time in this program. It used to be I would call my sponsor hoping that she would tell me I'm not bad. And now it's to call my sponsor and go, I'm having feelings, not facts. And I just need to talk them out with someone. A lot of it is I'm, I'm the villain, the biggest villain in my story. Still, I'm still the biggest villain and I should be better. Uh... I hate the word should so much. And if that's popping up, it's usually a sign that I need to write or hand, you know, do something. Taking a drive, it it depends on the situation, but I think what it comes down to is making space for myself before judging the feelings that I'm having in the crisis. Whatever action it takes to solve the crisis is kind of the least tricky for me. It's more about the feelings and how I internalize it. Did that answer your question? Okay, thanks. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Hi. Hi. Thank you for sharing. Um, do you have a process, or can you talk about your process on how you deal with and how you dealt with shame and regret from original before coming in the program, and then how you deal with it now? Yeah. Thank you. How do I deal with shame and regret? How did I deal with it then, and how do I deal with it now? Shame and regret, I would, I would purge. I would get violent with myself. I would purge, or I would hurt myself. Um, now I'm not allowed to do that. Oh, I did tack that onto my abstinence. I'm not allowed to self-harm, um, which I always forget about because the only time it comes up is if I think, like, I'm so mad at myself, I want to do something, but that's so rare these days. Uh, now, how do I deal with shame? When shame comes up, it's a lot less often, so I'm very grateful for that. When it comes up, I usually, same thing, I kind of have to pause. Um, I had it come up in a big way last weekend where I, was, I just felt so ashamed. I, my dog is really sick and I've needed to ask for a lot of help lately. And it makes me want to cry. Um, I had to step back and go, this is a feeling, not your identity. Um, and shame is a really tricky one. Shame and guilt, especially for me, is I'll wear it like a like a suit of armor. Like I'll keep people away from me if I feel ashamed because don't come around me. I'm not. I don't deserve anything. Um, now I just give myself some time and space and really try to remind myself that it's a feeling, not a fact. And I don't know if I'll ever get to a point where that goes away all, all the way. It's a feeling, not a fact. I'm a big feeler and life keeps happening. So it's not going to stop, but, um, I'm still a work in progress on that. I, that's my best answer. I'm still a work in progress, but I try to turn to the tools. The worst thing I can do is try to work through it and fix something. Yeah. Thanks for your question. Go ahead. Thank you so much. Um, how are you gentle with yourself? How am I gentle with myself today? I have a hard time with that. Um, How am I gentle with myself? 
self-care is still really hard for me. Um, I definitely make time for it. A lot of times it's, I'll budget it. I, I don't have a great answer for it. I really don't because I'm still working on it. But making time for meetings, I'll talk myself out of a meeting if I have a lot of work to do because I have a day job and a night job. That's why I have to have a service commitment. Um, making time for meetings, scheduling things. Because if I don't schedule them, I'll pick up the chaos of the day and run with it. Um, Self-care looks like going to meditation at least once a month. That sounds really small. It could be better. But if I budget it more in my calendar, it starts to freak me out. And if I, once I get myself in that room, I usually make time for more of it. Same with meetings, same with prayer, same with journaling. Um, But I'm open to tips. It's hard. It's hard because there's always something to be done. Um, yeah. Does that answer your question? Okay, cool. Thanks. Go ahead. When you're coming back from a gig, mm-hmm. which involves a tremendous amount of emotional, physical output, how do you restore when you get back without the food? Mm. How do I restore when I get back from a gig without using food? a gig that requires a lot of emotional output. Uh, We call it re-entry. It usually takes about a week after I'm working with people who've been in conflict. Um, I don't make plans. I don't make plans. I don't have meetings after work. Um, It's a lot of sleeping. Thanks, I hear that. It's a lot of sleeping. It's a lot of do the bare minimum. It's a lot of journaling, but it's mostly just emptying my brain because when we're in those positions, essentially what we become are sponges and beyond like when we're in, those are the most extreme versions. But even when I'm at work every day, you know, I'm there to be working for other people, um, which when the days are bad, it's like, try to be of service in this job. It feels, I think everyone gets this at at some point, like you feel like a sponge and you get filled up. And if I don't let time leave time to kind of release, I'll explode and I'll explode on myself and it'll turn into self-loathing really, really quickly. So, um, those are the times when I have to mark my calendar with free time. I have to put it in my calendar as don't make plans. And then I get to the day and I go, just sit. I have a really hard time doing that. Um, just sit just read a book, just turn on the TV, just sit with your dog, just stop doing stuff. Because when I'm doing, you know, when it's like you get busy, you get better. I kind of take that way too far sometimes. So when I get busy, I certainly get better, but it's okay to sit sometimes. Um, So yeah, I have to mark stuff. I have to mark time off so I can just decompress. Thank you. Thanks. Any other questions? Go ahead. Um, Thank you, Kat. So do you have a significant other? I don't. I came a little bit late. Um, do you have a, your relationship? Um, I, I you mentioned about self-loathing and mm. beating yourself up. When that, that happens to me, I tend to take it out on a significant other. Mm, mm-hmm. Do you have that? Do I have a significant other? No. Um, and that is probably well. I don't have a significant other because my higher power hasn't brought me my person yet. That's the most healing I've had to do is I spent a long time going, you don't have a significant other because you're not lovable. Um, 
I haven't been dating for the past almost two years because I came out of a really bad relationship that made me feel the way I used to make myself feel before I was in recovery. Um, but the recovery for me there was that I ended it. Um, it's a really triggering thing for me to talk about, which means I need to talk about it. Uh, I haven't found my person yet. I would like a person. What I've learned, re- I mean, I, I'm 35. I'm very lucky because I don't want biological kids, so I don't have a clock, which has helped me go, you're allowed to invite people in when it feels right. Um, when I'm in a relationship, it's usually about treating them like the way I want to be treated, and then I'll go silently and take it out on myself. Um, not to say, That's not to say that... That sounds like I never F up. I F up all the time. And I say things I shouldn't say. And it feels easier to make amends in those moments to them than it does to myself. I hope that doesn't sound like... I have an easier time being nice to other people than I do to myself. But I certainly mess up all the time with them. Um, With significant others... I have a really hard time recognizing setting a boundary, what setting a boundary looks like versus, uh, gosh, what setting a boundary looks like versus not making them feel good. I struggle with that. And I'm a work in, I'm a real work in progress when it comes to dating. Um, yeah, I, I have to be honest. I feel really less than right now saying that because that's what I'm working on. (sighs) But it feels good to be able to say that. That's my answer. Thanks. Anyone else? Please don't make me end on that. (laughs) Sure, go ahead. What brings the most joy to your heart? Ooh. What brings the most joy to my heart? in program being here with you all um I hear that thank you I'll wrap up uh the most joy in program is being in these rooms with everyone I think it's when someone makes a joke that would sound really dark outside of these rooms and everyone (laughs) immediately busts up laughing I think that's when I'm just like peak program happiness (laughs) because we get it and it feels good to be in good company um that's it Thanks for letting me share. Okay. Now is the time for the secretary's announcement. Good morning, everyone. My name is Tusa. Hi, Tusa.